Morning. Good to see you all this morning. And to you at home and Zoom as well. Good to see you all this morning. There's uh, an outline on your, on your chair. It's got all the uh, verses and the various points that we're looking at this morning. So that's there if you want to make use of it at all. Now, if Keith ever asks you if you like hill walking, then watch out. Because he's probably about to recruit you for one of his epic hill climbs. Specifically, his ambition to climb every Munro in Scotland. And Munros, by the way, are the 282 mountains in Scotland that are over 3,000 feet high. That's right, Keith, isn't it? Good, good. So far, so good. Keith has, I believe, currently, as of this week, when I checked with him, he's managed to climb 264 of the 282, which means that if his knees hold out, He's still got 18 left to climb, so he may be looking for some people to go with him on those hill climbs. He did manage to persuade me one evening to accompany him uh, to climb a Munro in the very, very north of Scotland, the second most northerly one up in the very north of Scotland, a mountain called Ben Clibrek, which is 3,156 feet high. And there's a picture of Keith and I here at the bottom, getting ready to climb, psyching ourselves up, getting ready all ready to go. And then here's a picture, a picture to prove that I did actually make it. I think there are lots of people who didn't think I would get it, get there, but I did. I think Keith had the mountain rescue on speed dial just in case, but I made it. And we made it up there and we made it back. 3,156 feet. Mount Sinai is a mountain in what is now modern day Saudi Arabia. And it's 7,497 feet high. So that's over twice the height of, of Ben Clibrek. And here's a picture of Mount Sinai today. This is, that's it. And, and if, if you look carefully, you might see Keith at the bottom there just kind of getting ready to, to climb that. And as we saw last week, the people of Israel, who numbered at this stage in their history, probably about 2.5 million people, had under the leadership of Moses escaped from Egypt and they'd reached Mount Sinai in modern-day Saudi Arabia. 645 years earlier, God had entered into a covenant, a special agreement with Abraham, who was the famous father and ancestor of the nation of Israel. And you can read about that in Genesis 15. And as you read then through the books of Genesis and then into Exodus, God gradually develops and kind of reveals more about this covenant and it begins to be fulfilled. Part of that covenant was that Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, would be God's chosen people. And the land that Abraham was living in when God entered into this covenant with him, that the land of Canaan, would one day belong to Abraham's descendants. It was called, therefore, the promised land. Now, a few months before the Israelites had actually reached Mount Sinai, Moses, their leader, had led the Israelites out of Egypt as they'd escaped from slavery under Pharaoh. And the night that they escaped from Egypt, God had commanded the Israelites, each household, to take a lamb and to sacrifice it and then to apply the blood of those lambs on the doorpost and on the lintels of their houses. And that night, as God brought his final punishment against the nation of, Is of uh, Egypt, the tenth of the ten plagues, the firstborn in every single house in the land of Egypt died, except for the Israelites, because they had put the blood of the lambs on their doorposts and lintels. Because God had said this, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. The people of Israel escaped God's judgment. 
against Egypt because God's judgment passed over the houses with the blood on the doorposts and the lintels. And every year from that point on, the Israelites commemorated that great event by sacrificing a lamb, eating it, and then they called it the Passover because God's judgment had passed over them specifically that night in Egypt. And Jewish people to this day still commemorate the Passover every year. It was effectively God launching the covenant between himself and the people of Israel. And then God finalized, if you like, the covenant, the details of the covenant, once the Israelites reached Mount Sinai, once they reached the foot of this mountain. God called Moses up to the top of the mountain and he met with him. And God then gave Moses the Ten Commandments and some further rules and regulations about how he wanted the nation to live and function and worship and so on all part of this covenant. And then Moses came back down to tell the people what God had said. And that's the point where we've reached today. Now, when I came back down from Mount, uh, from Ben Clibrick, I needed a few days to recover, if I'm honest. My kind of body was a little bit gone. And I, Moses was 80 at this point, so uh, I was 40 when I did that. So I'm not quite sure how Moses managed all this. Maybe he had some climbing poles as well. But anyway, Moses comes back down, and this is the point that we've reached this morning. And it's one of the most, if not arguably, the most significant point in the nation of Israel's history. And what happens is recorded for us in Exodus 24. So we're going to read the whole chapter, Exodus 24, verses 1 to 18. So if you've got a Bible handy and you want to turn to it, or you can just listen, whatever you're comfortable with. So Moses has come back down, he's been up the the mountain, now he's back down. And this is uh, Exodus 24, 1 to 18, this is what we read. Then he said to Moses, that's God, then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the the Lord's words and laws, that's all the, the, the covenant, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set set out with Joshua his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you and everyone, and, sorry, anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud 
as he went up on the mountain and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Having received the Ten Commandments and some of the general kind of rules and regulations of the covenant between God and between Israel, God then tells Moses to come back up on the mountain and we read this then he said to Moses come up to the Lord you and Aaron Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel you're to worship at a distance but Moses alone is to approach the Lord the others must not come near and the people may not come up with him but before he did what he said or what God said Moses told all the people of Israel what God had said to him when he had been up on the mountain he told them about the Ten Commandments and the other rules and regulations all of which are found in Exodus 20 to 23. So this is what Moses is telling the people. It's the words you read in Exodus 20 to 23. And then Moses wrote all that down for them. Verse 3 says this, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. And then in response to God's command to come back up the mountain and meet with God and worship him, we then read these words. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So the altar that he, that he built was to represent God. And it was where he would then offer sacrifices to God in worship. And the 12 stones were to symbolize, were to represent, if you like, the 12 tribes of Israel that were down on the plain below. And then we read this. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses got young men because they'd be fit and strong and able to handle these many different animals, particularly cows that they would have to bring. And they brought them and they sacrificed them as an act of worship to God. The word worship that's used here in verse 1 literally means, if it's literally translated, to bow down uh, to, and to bow face down to somebody that is greater than you. That's what they were doing. They were bowing face down to somebody that was greater than them. They were worshipping God. They were worshipping the Lord who had come down in some way onto Mount Sinai. Moses and Aaron, his brother, and Nadab and Abihu, who were Aaron's sons, and then 70 of the elders of Israel, who were representing the whole of the nation, they worshipped God, they bowed down, they, 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 prostrate, they prostrated themselves in front of God's presence by offering these sacrifices. Verse 5 says they offered burnt offerings and they offered fellowship offerings. Some Bible versions put them as peace offerings, it means the same thing. God had rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and he'd established them as a nation in their own right and he'd given them the basic rules, the basic regulations, the, the law that he wanted them to live by. And God had, was now making them into a nation and he'd given them his special law and the next stage of this covenant between God and Israel was then to take possession of the land that he'd promised to Abraham way back in Genesis 15. And so in response to what God had done for them, Moses then leads all the people to offer these burnt offerings and these fellowship offerings as an act of worship to God. Now, burnt offering, the animal would be put to death and the whole animal would be burned up on the altar. And the whole point of this was to demonstrate or to act out total devotion to God. That was the kind of essence of what a burnt offering was about. Giving an animal to God was a costly thing to do. It was a, a costly possession. And so it was part of, it was kind of an act of sacrifice, of giving over, and it was to be burnt up completely to symbolize complete devotion to God. And so Moses 
And this group of 70 or so men were leading the whole nation. They were acting on their behalf in worshipping God. And they were saying that they, from now on, were going to be totally devoted to God. They were worshipping God in response to who he was and in response to what he'd done for them in rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and bringing them together to be a people. In a fellowship or a peace offering, it's the same thing, the animal was put to death and then some of the animal was burned up on the altar as an act of devotion, a little bit like the burnt offering. But then most of the animal was cooked and eaten by the people who were offering the the uh, sacrifice and the idea was that it symbolized God and his people sharing food and sharing fellowship and being in relationship with each other when we eat together it's one of the kind of real tangible ways isn't it of saying that we're friends we're sat around we're sharing food together so in the fellowship or the peace offering that was kind of what's happening it wasn't just an act of devotion to God it was also they kind of acted it out by eating the uh, food of the actual offering itself and that was a symbolic way of saying they were in relationship with God they were at peace with God and with each other it was a beautiful kind of moment for them and they if you look down at verse 11 you'll see that these men ate and drank in God's presence they they celebrated this new this special covenant relationship between God and Israel by eating the food of the sacrifices then in verse 6 we read this Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar now the the altar represented God so Moses was demonstrating to God uh, that and, and, and was demonstrating to all the people that God was bound to the words that he'd said in Exodus 20 to 23 the the law he was bound to the to the words he said and he was bound to the people and, he, and Moses was doing that by shedding this blood and putting this blood on the altar. And the reason that blood was used was to demonstrate the seriousness and the, the unbreakable nature of this covenant between God and Israel. That's what the blood was about. Blood in the Bible is used as a symbol of life. And uh, often you, you have the, the, the phrase, the shedding of blood or the pouring out of blood. And, and in the Bible, it's symbolic of life coming to an end, the end of a life the shed blood of a sacrifice. So by sacrificing these animals and by using their blood in this way, Moses was symbolically saying that if either party, God or the nation, broke this covenant, then they would be deserving of death. That's what Moses was doing. And having splashed the blood on the altar, which represented God, he then read God's words from this book of the covenant, Exodus 20 to 23, the words that he'd written down. This is what it says. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And then having done that, and having received the response of the people, or, or, or more likely the response of the 70 elders, because they were there representing the two and a half million people down below, we then read this. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this was effectively, this moment was the great signing off, if you like, of the covenant between God and Israel. Instead of signing with a pen like we might do today, this was effectively each party signing in blood. They were, they were, they were demonstrating that this was a serious covenant that couldn't be broken. It was a covenant that meant that they were to be God's people and to worship him and that God was going to give them the promised land to live in. And that if they kept all of the commands that God had given uh, to Moses, what the Bible sometimes refers to as the law of Moses, then they would be blessed and they would prosper in the promised land. That was the basic kind of tenets, if you like, of the covenant between God and Israel. 
But covenant was first introduced way back in Genesis 15 when God spoke to Abraham and it was gradually kind of revealed a bit more uh, to his descendants. And then it was finally, you could say, signed initially by God when they were protected by the blood of the lambs at the first Passover in Egypt. And then a few weeks later or a few months later at Sinai, the deal was sealed, if you like, when Moses offered these animals as burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And as he sprinkled their blood on the altar representing God and on the scroll representing the words of the covenant and then on the people of Israel themselves represented by the 70 elders uh, he was kind of signing if you like signing off on this covenant and this covenant this deal between God and Israel continued for the next 1477 years but as you read through the rest of the Old Testament and if you're remotely kind of familiar with what happens in the history of the nation of Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament or or, or more accurately as it should be called the Old Covenant then you'll discover that whilst God always kept his side of the deal God never broke his side of the covenant the people of Israel on the other hand just repeatedly broke the terms of the covenant over and over again they messed up and they made a mess of things there was always a small remnant of people that were faithful to God But throughout the next 1,477 years, the majority of the people of Israel failed to keep the covenant and they disobeyed God. And as a result, God's punishments were poured out on them over and over again, just as he'd promised them. And he'd warned them over and over again. And and as a result, he allowed foreign nations that surrounded Israel to come in and they were God's means of punishing Israel for breaking their side of this special covenant. And then one night, 1,477 years later, Jesus, who was an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, was doing exactly what was written in the words of the covenant. He was celebrating the Passover with his friends in Jerusalem. He was remembering with them that great night when God had seen the blood of the Lamb and had passed over the people who were sheltering under it and then had freed the Jews, the Israelites, from slavery and led them out into a new life. And after eating the Passover feast with his 12 disciples, Jesus took bread And then he took wine specifically, and this is what he said. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So this covenant signed off with the blood of animals at Mount Sinai 1,477 years earlier was now over, was finished. And God was introducing a new covenant, a new agreement between God and people, not just Israel. And Jesus was about to, if, if you like, sign this new covenant by shedding not the blood of animals, but shedding his own blood at the cross. And, and the wine in the cup that he would have been drinking and sharing with the disciples was a picture of the blood that he was about to shed. And as we said earlier, the imagery of blood in the Bible and of shed blood is a, is a picture of life itself. So when we talk about Jesus' blood, when we sing songs about Jesus' blood, it, it's a way really of referring to Jesus' life laid down as a sacrifice for us that's, that's really it's kind of shorthand uh, for that and every time on a Sunday or whenever we do it that we take bread and wine together as we remember the body of Jesus broken for us on the cross and then as we remember Jesus blood shed on the cross we are remembering that new covenant celebrating that new covenant Jesus blood was the blood of not the old covenant but the new covenant as opposed to the blood of the old covenant which was animals the covenant between God and Israel what was from then onwards referred to as the old covenant 
Initially, it was the covenant. Then it became the old covenant as Jesus introduced this new covenant. Now, it wasn't that there was a problem with the old covenant in itself. That The problem wasn't with the covenant. The problem was with the people of Israel. It required them to be obedient to God, but because of sin, they rarely ever were. Uh, either as individuals or as a whole nation, they just repeatedly failed to keep their side of the covenant. But the new covenant, this new agreement between God and those who put their faith in Jesus, is much superior to that old covenant. Because it doesn't, firstly, depend on our obedience. The old covenant required both sides to keep their part of the deal. And it was signed in blood. It was serious. The new covenant is signed in blood, but it only requires one person to keep his side of the bargain, and that's Jesus. We, it's a totally one-sided covenant between God and people. It depends not on what we do. It depends instead on who Jesus is and what Jesus has already done. And because of who Jesus is and what he's done in dying on the cross in our place and, and by shedding his blood, we receive forgiveness, we receive eternal life, we receive a relationship with God. None of it relies on what we do. It all relies upon what Jesus has done for us. It's totally one-sided. The old covenant, the covenant signed up to at Sinai by Moses on behalf of the whole people of Israel was amazing. And it was given in amazing circumstances. But because of sin, it failed. The problem wasn't with the, the, the covenant. The problem was with the people. The problem was with sin. The new covenant is so much more amazing, and it's all about Jesus. In the new covenant, Jesus is our Passover lamb. We shelter from God's wrath against our sin because Jesus has shed his blood for us. So we, Jesus, if you like, takes the role of the Passover lamb for us, and we shelter under what he's done. We shelter from God's wrath because he died. His blood shelters us. The new covenant, in the new covenant, Jesus is our burnt offering. He offered himself completely and totally to God. His whole life was consumed in service to God, and his whole life was consumed as he laid down his life on the cross. Jesus held nothing back. He paid it all. Jesus paid it all and gave it all for us. And in the new covenant, Jesus is our fellowship offering. A peace offering, it's through Jesus that we can celebrate the relationship and the fellowship and the peace that we have with God. So after this amazing ceremony where the covenant was fully established at the, the foot of Mount Sinai, we read these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire clear as the sky itself but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites they saw God and they ate and drank they saw the God of Israel wow what a statement they saw the God of Israel I wonder what that was like what was that about it's amazing what an amazing experience that they actually saw God in some way not only did they in some way see God but they were able to continue eating and drinking and they continued to eat the meat from the uh, fellowship, the peace offerings, uh, in God's presence. And they weren't wiped out by God. They were able to do that because it was a symbolic way of the fact that they were at peace. They were in relationship with God. Apart from this reference to what was under God's feet being like a pavement made of sapphire, there's no more description of what they actually saw. And I think that's for two reasons. Firstly, despite Moses' great education, the Bible talks about him being the most educated man in the world practically at that point, 
he was at a loss to properly and accurately describe what he saw. You can have the greatest vocabulary in the world and you still wouldn't be able to accurately and adequately describe what God is like. He is indescribable, he is uncontainable. God is beyond our understanding and, des- and describing and kind of putting down into, into words. And I think that's the first reason why, despite Moses' no doubt great vocabulary, he was unable to, to adequately and fully really describe what he saw. But secondly, if Moses had written down a description, then from that moment on, People, including us here today, would have been trying to reproduce that description with paintings and with statues and images and and so on, trying to some way reproduce God's likeness from that description. And that's something that God specifically forbids. He specifically forbids that in the covenant. Because then we'd be worshipping something that we've created rather than the creator himself who is unseen, who can't be seen. Paul writes these words in the New Testament about God who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. God is indescribable. God can't be kind of contained to something that is written down for us or kind of something of our own imagination. Whenever anyone in some way saw God in the Old Testament, including in this incident here, what they were seeing, what they were experiencing was God the Son before he became a human being at Bethlehem. And every description we get in the Old Testament puts it, and in the New Testament as well in fact, puts it in terms of something like this, I saw something that looked like, or I saw something that resembled. So they were never seeing God fully or completely. What, 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 what they were seeing was something of the form of God the Son, or the approximation of God the Son. John writes these words in, one, in John 1.18. He says this, speaking about Jesus, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So God the Son has made God the Father known to us from creation onwards. God the Son is the means by which God speaks to us. And makes himself known. That's why Jesus is referred to as the word. The word that then is made flesh. And God especially spoke to us when Jesus became a human being there at Bethlehem. But even as a human being, God's glory was still veiled. It was still hidden. When people looked at Jesus, they didn't see this glory, this, this, this amazing kind of scene of God being on earth. They just saw a human being. God's glory was still hidden as God the Son became a human being. And it won't be until... Jesus comes again to rule and to reign that we will see God the Son properly in all his glory. It won't be until we see Jesus. Because only then will we be able to cope with the sight and we'll be able to properly comprehend who he really is and all that he really is. The amazing thing is, though, this, that even though God is unseen and lives in unapproachable light, if we've trusted in Jesus... And according to the Bible, God, this unseen God, actually lives in us. John says this, the same John who wrote John chapter 1, says this in 1 John 4 verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. In other words, our love for each other is proof that we've trusted in Jesus. And if we've trusted in Jesus, then the God that lives in unapproachable light, the God who is unseeable, actually lives in you and me amazing 
The God who is unseeable, the God that in some way Moses and the 70 guys up there on the mountain in some way saw some kind of sort of uh, restricted view of God. The God that's unseeable actually, if we trust in Jesus, lives in us. And that's amazing. And, and John goes on to say two verses later, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. So this God that lives in unapproachable light, light that you, can't, you, you just can't take in, it's just too, it's too amazing, too uh, awe-inspiring, blinding, this unapproachable light, that God, that God that Moses and his, his companions in some way saw at Mount Sinai, actually comes and lives within us through the power of his Holy Spirit when we trust in Jesus. And when Jesus finally comes again to rule and to reign, then we will see him face to face in all his glory, not in some kind of restricted view or restricted understanding, but then properly in all his glory, the one who is indescribable, the one who is just beyond our understanding. Then we will know him fully then we will see him fully we will know just as he knows after Moses and his companions in some way saw God he and his assistant Moses Joshua rather then went further up the mountain on their own they left the rest behind and then we read these words when Moses went up on the mountain the, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. The cloud and the fire and God's voice were all visible manifestations of God's glory and God's presence. To Moses, God's presence, according to these verses, appeared and looked like a cloud. But to the Israelites, 7,500 feet below, it appeared like a consuming fire. A fire that burned everything up and consumed everything up. A, a terrifying fire. Maybe it looked something like this. This is a kind of a, a painting of Mount Sinai with something of what it might have looked like for the people below. This, this, this consuming fire that has descended on top of the mountain, representing in some way God's presence. The writer of the book of Hebrews refers to this verse and he says that we, as people of the new covenant, should worship God acceptably with reverence and awe because why? Our God is a consuming fire. The God that we worship this morning in our own lives as a church together is the God who descended on Mount Sinai. He is that consuming fire. And it's good to remind ourselves, as we did last week, that God hasn't changed. The ferociously holy God of... Uh, Exodus 23 is still the God that we worship today. The God who says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And the God that we worship this morning as we've done that together in, in, in different ways is still that consuming fire. And Hebrews tells us that he's still a consuming fire. A consuming fire that will one day burn up all those that reject him. And, and that should just kind of cause us to pause and think, shouldn't it? about how we, as people of this new covenant, relate to God. How we refer to God. How do we speak to him? How do we speak about him? The, the, the words that we use to describe him. How we treat God. He is this consuming fire. 
Because whilst he is our loving Heavenly Father who we can come to without fear, we can boldly approach, we can come to in love and acceptance because of what Jesus has done for us, he's not our mate next door. He is still a consuming fire that burns up his enemies. That is still the God that we worship. And it's amazing that we don't have to fear him in terms of, because perfect love drives out fear. We don't have to be afraid of God, but we still do need to fear him. It's not a contradiction. We don't need to be afraid because we come in Jesus and we can boldly approach God's throne, his throne of grace. But we are still to fear him, to worship him acceptably with reverence and awe. God is not our best mate next door. God is God the consuming fire. Verse 18 says that Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And it was during those 40 days that God then gave Moses all of the rest of the regulations and principles of the covenant and the law. And next week, Joel, well, for the next two weeks, Joel's going to be looking for us at the tabernacle, which was how God set up the system of worship that the people of the first, the old covenant were then to worship God by. And we're going to look at that over the next two weeks and that's part of what Moses was receiving over these next 40 days on top of the mountain can you imagine being alone in God's presence witnessing and experiencing his glory I can't it's beyond my ability to imagine that can you imagine though in in, in some way being alone with God in this awe-inspiring experience God is in some way present in the cloud in the fire and Moses is encountering God and God is speaking to him we'll we'll find later on when Moses came down his face was shining with that to cover his face because he'd he'd in some way seen God must have been literally out of this world to be in some way face to face with God in God's presence seeing his glory Moses was with God for 40 days, but one day we will be with God forever. Not just 40 days, not just an hour on a Sunday morning or in a home group or in our quiet times. Not just 40 days, which is a long time actually, but actually we'll be with God forever and forever, for all eternity. Moses was with God for 40 days. We will be with God forever if we've trusted in Jesus. If we haven't trusted in Jesus, then that is not our destiny. But if we have trusted in Jesus, then we will be with God forever and ever, and we will see him and experience him in all his wondrous glory. Revelation 21 gives us a bit of a glimpse of what will happen. And again, the the language in Revelation is hugely kind of pictorial and symbolic because human beings can never really do justice to what they're seeing of God. But Revelation 21, John writes this, Now the dwelling of God is with men. This is John seeing into the future when Jesus has come to rule and reign and be with his people forever. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. This world is a mess, isn't it? And our lives are kind of struggling often under the the mess of this world, the sin of this world. But when Jesus comes and when God comes to live and rule and live amongst his people, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, 
no more pain. Because God will wipe every tear from their eyes to finally be with God, to finally see his glory, to finally be with him for all eternity. One day we will be with God forever, his people, people of the new covenant, and that's all because of Jesus. And it will all be about Jesus for all eternity. So in a tiny, just a tiny, tiny taste of what it will be like to worship Jesus in heaven, we're going to worship Jesus now this morning as we bring our service to a close by singing together in Christ alone and maybe Daniel one Sunday in heaven will lead the worship and we will be the choir with Daniel and the band and we'll be there worshipping and leading everybody else in in heaven because don't forget by then our voices will be amazing and Daniel's voice already is amazing but we'll worship God together and we'll be there forever so we're going to do that now just a little taste a little glimpse of what it looks like and will be like to focus on Jesus We're going to stand, we're going to sing in Christ alone and just worship our Savior, the the one who has in his own blood given us this new covenant, this amazing agreement between God and us, which will end or or will culminate in us being with him forever. So let's, let's do that together. Thanks, Daniel.